Great. Well, uh, welcome. Welcome to the uh, final event in the LSC Works Lecture Series, sponsored by Sage Publications. Um, some of you may realise that I'm not Stuart Corbridge, um, who you might have been expecting to chair the event. The more observant among you must have, might have noticed. This event was actually his, his brainchild. He, he thought of this, he wanted this to happen, and then he was called to Singapore at the last minute. So, um, hence me. I'm Alexandra Jones. I'm the Chief Executive of Centre for Cities, which is, within the UK, the only think tank dedicated to understanding and improving urban economies. So, this is an event I'd have probably been in the audience anyway, so I'm delighted to be here and, and chairing uh, two such interesting speakers. I mean, this is, as I said, the final in a series. It's really showcased some of the latest research by LSE's research centres. So um, I was at the one uh, by the Spatial Economics Research Centre as well on London and how London got away with it. There was uh, a session with the Centre for Economic Progress, amongst others. And what we're really going to look at today is a joint research project that's brought together the expertise of LSE cities, an international centre uh, looking at cities, um, and the Brookings Institution Metropolitan Policy Programme. And what this has really looked at, I mean, Brookings and LSE cities have been working together for some time. They did a, a conference in the States last year. And this project has really been focusing on how the recent recession has affected the economic and social prosperity of global cities. So it's looking at key sectors of growth, focusing on the green economy, looking at local government policy frameworks. And I think what's really interesting about the research and about what we're going to hear today is that it's drawing on international examples, examples from Europe, Asia and America, learning lessons from the experience of cities all around the world. And that's going to be increasingly crucial, not just because we live in a global economy, but because this is a challenging time and we need new ideas, new perspectives. I mean, a central finding in, in this research is that cities will continue to play a critical role in creating and sustaining uh, stable economies. Now, clearly, as a Chief Executive of Centre for Cities, I would agree with that. But it's not as simple as that. I mean, you have got a world in which over 50% of um, the world's population live in cities. They're clearly going to be central to driving economic growth and prosperity. But we need to understand... What specifically drives cities? What specifically drives urban growth? And how can we do things uh, within government policy and within the cities themselves to respond to that and to support it? Um, I mean, at Centre for Cities, a lot of our work focuses on the UK. And I know from the work that we've done with the UK, but also looking at some international examples, quite how challenging it is to make the most of cities, to really respond to the differences between them. I and mean, we know how central they are. In Great Britain, cities account for 60% of the jobs, um, and that's 4% more than their population. And within just 14% of the land, cities have 62% of the jobs. The nine largest cities in England generate 49.5% of GDP. So when I say nearly half, I really do mean nearly half of uh, England's GDP. So we know they matter. We know we have to make the most of them. We know that across the world, cities offer businesses access to labour, to customers, to new ideas. But we do need to understand how different cities are from one another. And I think that's what these examples are going to talk about, the differences, but also the common lessons we can learn. I mean, in the UK, for example, during the economic boom, what you found was that everywhere prospered, but certain cities did a great deal better than others. So you've got cities such as London, which gained over 300,000 private sector jobs between 98 and 2008. At the same time, uh, Birmingham, another major city, lost 60,000 private sector jobs 
The only reason Birmingham grew its economy at all was the public sector. Another startling statistic that, that we found was um, that for every one net new job created in the private sector in the North and the Midlands during that period, 98 to 2008, 10 new jobs, new private sector jobs, were created in London and the South. So there's big differences at that regional level and at the city level. And we need to understand that. We need to understand the different assets cities have, the different challenges they face, and how they make the most of them, how they respond to that. Um, so when we're thinking about what the, uh, the, the vision for the, for the next urban economy, what we found, and I think this is reflected in some of the things that, that Ricky and Bruce are going to talk about, is there's a need to get cities focusing on their, their real assets. Not just what they'd like to have. A lot of cities are very clear about what they'd like to be. Um, centres of the green economy is the latest. It used to be centres of biotech. Um, so they'd all, everyone would like to be the next place that's world class at something. But actually, if they focus on their real assets, what they've really got, that makes a difference. They need to focus on supporting jobs growth, but also the high-value sectors. And there's a difference between the two. Often the higher-value sectors don't generate the jobs. You need both. You need to recognise the need to work across boundaries. Um, so making sure that you know, a city like London relies very heavily on the neighbouring areas. And that's true, and I know that Bruce has been looking at this in the States. There's examples such as Glasgow and Edinburgh. Can they work together more? And then there's the, uh, I know that's uh, not an easy challenge. I've said this to them. They, um, they know it's a good idea, but they don't want to do it. Um, but I think there are real challenges in a global economy where actually cities can benefit from working together and they really need their hinterlands because they draw the labour, they draw the customers from there. How do you get that happening? And how do you get some cities to recognise that actually their economic purpose has changed? And that's going to mean some very tough decisions. I think some of the cities you'll talk about have taken some tough decisions. For some cities, um, Leipzig is one of them, the cities in the States, they've had to downsize. They've had to recognise their physical infrastructure was actually too big for them and that that's one of the ways that you can make the most of uh, the assets. So we know that cities, to thrive, need to take action on a whole range of measures. This is about planning, it's about housing, it's about skills, it's about transport. It's about having some financial autonomy. One of the big problems in the UK is that uh, they don't have financial autonomy. Uh, to give you a sense, in the UK, about 17% of uh, money is raised locally. The OECD average, 55%. So there is some way to go before we get anywhere near that. And I think that's one of the big differences that some of the cities you'll be talking about. But I think there's still lessons we can learn. And finally, leadership. I'm sure we'll, we'll be coming up a great deal. Getting the governance structures right, getting the leadership right so cities know where they're going, they know what they're doing, they can inspire confidence in the private and the public sector, and they can actually just demonstrate they're making progress. Now, that's a wide range of issues, and I'm sure some, if not all of those, will be coming up in the examples we'll hear about. But I think th these big questions about how do, you, how do you grow the urban economy and how's the economy changing now we're emerging from the biggest recession since the 1920s are absolutely critical for now, which is why I think it's going to be such an interesting debate. So I'm delighted to be uh, introducing Ricky Burdett, Professor of Urban Studies at the London School of Economics and Political Science, Director of LSE Cities, which uh, is relatively new on the block compared to some of the, the centres, so set up in January 2010, um, supported by Deutsche Bank. Um, I could list all of your, your uh, different uh, positions, but I won't. 
Suffice it to say, he's more than qualified to speak on this issue. Um, and what he's going to be doing is talking about how selected kind of European and Asian cities, so Torino, Barcelona, Munich, Seoul, have overcome crises such as the one we've just come through and demonstrated significant progress in urban economic development over the last 20 years. I'd be really interested to hear what lessons we can learn and, and what we can draw from global cities from the experiences of these places. So, thank you. Thanks very much, Alex, and thanks for stepping in and taking the place of Stuart Corbridge. Can we have the lights down so we can just look at the screen, if possible? Can you do that over there? Uh, what I thought I'd do is, um, uh, apart from speak in some detail about the research which has been done collectively by uh, a number of people, not only at Brookings, uh, but at LSE Cities, many of whom are here, and um, the list is too long to thank them, uh, is also use this opportunity uh, to talk for a few minutes at the beginning as to what LSE Cities is about, uh, only because the whole point of these uh, series of talks, um, LSE Works, is to uh, begin to communicate to the outside world what it is that is happening inside the London School of Economics, which sometimes may be perceived as remaining within the ivory tower. Now, Philip Rother and I, who've been running the Urban Age project for a number of years, uh, and now LSE Cities as of last year, are very interested in exactly the opposite, in uh, taking things out and trying to um, at least communicate ideas and actually sh help influence the way cities are shaped, shaped and are governed. And um, as a partner in crime in that, I think uh, Brookings is uh, well up on that agenda, and you'll hear in a moment from Bruce Katz after me uh, what Obama should be doing in no uncertain terms. That's what uh, it's about. So there's a strong, let's say, political uh, dimension to some of the work uh, that uh, we are doing here. Uh, and I start uh, just setting a context which is familiar to many of you here, but it's important to just remind ourselves why we're looking at this issue, why we're looking at the urban issue, why cities, as Alex has said, are important, and certainly not just important here. There are many who argue that actually in the West and in the global North, cities are becoming less and less significant because people are moving out in droves. Um, there are a few exceptions to that, and we'll touch upon it uh, later when we talk about the vision for the next economy in Europe and elsewhere. But many cities are actually becoming weaker. Uh, there's been a conference over the last few days organized by my colleague Anne Power, uh, both in London and in Belfast, actually looking at weak market cities and how they've picked themselves up uh, in the last years in the face of you know, serious decline in jobs uh, and other opportunities. But that's what's happening everywhere else in the world. And therefore, very importantly, the lessons that we can learn, as Alex was saying, in uh, good and positive examples uh, in the cities of the global north that can be exported and can be discussed become incredibly significant. And what we do at LSE Cities is not just study the numbers, which I will be talking about, uh, but study the shape of the city. And that's not what we're focusing on today in detail, but it will come up in many of the th things that I'm going to be saying. Uh, what I'm interested in, I guess, as an architect, as someone who's been involved um, in urban design with a number of uh, colleagues and, and working with um, people like Ken Livingstone, Richard Rogers, and others here, is what is the shape of the perhaps 75% that is going to be built up in the next few years? But not just for the sake of it in terms of design 
uh, whether it looks good or doesn't look good, whether the streets are beautiful or whether they're trees. But what does that do to both people in terms of their level of exclusion or access, and most importantly in terms of today, what does that mean actually to jobs? And here things like transport uh, and uh, physical proximity become incredibly important to this aspect. So I would say, uh, supporting what Alex was saying, you can't talk about a vision for the next economy inner cities without really touching on other issues, which sometimes are left out of this discourse. I mean, we are very interdisciplinary at LSE cities and want to talk about transport and public space and design and exclusion at the same time as we talk about the dynamics of city growth. And these are the dynamics. Again, this is work that we've been doing over the years, which will be published in a new book called Living in the Endless City, coming out in a few months. And even though you can't really see the details from where you're sitting at the back, it's important to just see the difference in tone of color in this map of the world. What it shows you in the darker green are the cities that effectively grew from the 50s, 1950s, over my lifespan effectively, um, to the 1980s and so. And you can see that obviously uh, cities like uh, New York, cities um, to lesser degree London, but uh, Tokyo also grew quite substantially in that period. Uh, in the uh, lighter green is the cities that have grown more recently, and you can see obviously in Asia, Africa, and particularly in South America, the great expansion. But most importantly is where a city is going to grow next, and it's the white bit. And you can see that the the dramatic shift towards Asia is clear, but also towards Africa. And many of these are low-income economies using very little energy today, with a lot of poverty. And these three points are absolutely instrumental to a discussion of the uh, vision of cities in the future uh, from the economic and the political point of view. And much as we talk about cities, and this is, again, part of what we're doing in our research center, much as we're overawed by that dramatic statistic of 75% uh, of the world's population might be urbanized in the next sort of 20, 30 years, they still only occupy 2% of the surface of the Earth. So there's some space to go in many ways. The real question for us is what shape are these cities and what do they do uh, to the environment, what do they do to people, and how do they continue to generate uh, and act as engines of the global economy, as Bruce and I will sort of stress. Another couple of things I want to touch upon before I sort of come to the core of my presentation on uh, the four or five uh, cities and the global metro monitor work we've done with Brookings, uh, just to place things again in a wider context. It's quite easy for us to say, how do we make Liverpool? How do we fix Liverpool? How do we fix East London? Andy Altman is here who's running the uh, Olympic legacy company, who is trying to fix East London through a series of massive investments made by central government, nearly nine billion pounds. But most of the growth that is happening around the world is of this order. 33%, a third of all people moving into cities around the world is informal and people living in slums without basic infrastructure. Therefore, no access in the formal way that we talk about it to jobs and other things. So I think it's important to bear that in mind, as is this other statistic, which is central to the uh, notion of a new economy because of the potential of low carbon in terms of creating uh, city jobs, that cities themselves, just buildings and environments, uh, generate 
because they consume so much energy, but generate something like 75% of CO2 emissions. So effectively, a small change in the shape and the, the dynamic of a city form makes a massive difference to the planet, uh, both in terms of the social well-being of its citizens, but also in terms of the environmental quality. These are issues that cut across the research we do and cut across some of the uh, themes that we're talking about. And this graph prepared by my colleagues, mainly Philip Rode and others, who worked on uh, two chapters which were published recently for the United Nations Environment Program on buildings on, on cities, in a way it tries to summarize some of the issues. I'm going to come back to this at the very end. Uh, it's a bit complicated, so bear with me. Let me explain what this is. Uh, on the horizontal scale, you have an index of human development. Basically, the better off you are, better health, better education, and better income, uh, the more you are along the right-hand side of this axis. On the vertical axis, you have the ecological footprint. Effectively, let's say how much energy you use, but more than that, how much food you eat, etc. The dotted line shows you over here uh, how much the capacity is of Earth to actually uh, uh, contain how much we consume. In other words, anything above that dotted line is more than the Earth's capacity. Right? And in the darker colors, you see the more urbanized nations. Now, we could spend hours on this, and I don't want to. There are one or two very simple points to be made. What you see is the obvious connection that the more wealthy we are, the better off we are, the more energy we consume. On the whole, the trend is the more urbanized we are, that is the case. But actually, that map begins to, in an interesting way, uh, break up, particularly in this sort of central area above where my hand is. Because what you see there is that there are some cities, there are some nations and cities within them, which are dark green, therefore highly urbanized, uh, which have pretty good levels of quality of life, um, and are consuming less than the ones at the top. Now, the ones at the top, I'm sorry, Bruce, are all American. Right? The ones way up there are Phoenix, uh, Los Angeles, and the other heavy consumers. It's obvious. The ones way down on the left-hand side, the light colors are sub-Saharan Africa and other uh, nations of that sort. Then you get China, South America. But in this sort of middle area, and that's what we're going to be talking about, this is the cities we've looked at in some detail, are on the right-hand side uh, Western European nations and cities, and on the uh, left-hand side mainly Eastern European nations and cities, where you see possibilities of creating places which are uh, positive in terms of well-being, but also not so negative in terms of uh, economic development. So, what I'm going to do is uh, focus on issues of population, but also issues of uh, the economy. Again, in terms of uh, the core issues that we're interested in LSE cities, uh, we're interested in not just the sheer numbers, but the pace of change. Uh, this graph shows you, if you can see the numbers, in, of how many people are either born or are moving into uh, cities like uh, Lagos, 40 people per hour, uh, Karachi, Mumbai, vast numbers, but also it's difficult to see in the red those cities which are going the other way. Berlin is basically static. Many American cities, we'll hear this later, uh, have had uh, sort of a negative growth, and that differential pattern is, I think, incredibly significant. And now we turn 
to the economy. And what you see here is, again, the pattern of urbanization that I showed you at the very beginning with the shift towards Asia, the shift towards Africa, uh, and the stabilization in South America is reflected by GDP growth, uh, as you see here. The numbers aren't important. What is important to me is what actually happens. And most of the growth takes on an identity, a visual reality of this sort. This is, the, you could, this is not an exaggeration. I mean, you don't need to take a camera in one particular uh, spot on the outsides of Shanghai, as this picture actually happens to be. Uh, this happens more or less everywhere. Uh, this is a well-known picture that many of you will have seen before, which is a favelas in um, Sao Paulo, which on one side has an area which hardly has any water or infrastructure. On the right-hand side has uh, such a wealthy environment that there's water on every single terrace. Now, I'm using these as a metaphor of also the issues that Bruce and I are talking about that we actually are creating in this moment of trying to fix our cities, cities which are actually incredibly divided, and perhaps more divided now than they've been for the last 20 or 30 years. And therefore, that physical dimension, you see that in Sao Paulo, the edges of the city are invaded, literally the term that is used in uh, Portuguese to describe this, are invaded by the poor, uh, drink, drinking up and polluting the uh, only sources of water that are possible. And of course, transport, 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 I think is at the heart of this in terms of providing access to jobs. Uh, if you have to spend four and a half hours, as people do in Sao Paulo or Bangkok, commuting every day, that is a negative impact on sort of the economy. So those are issues which very much lie behind the analysis we do at the level of governance, as you hear, at the level of density uh, of all the cities that we've studied. So let's turn to these uh, joint studies that we've done together uh, with Brookings, uh, with many of the colleagues here again, I uh, want to stress, uh, and with the support of the Alfred Herrhausen Society. What we decided to do was basically extend the work that Bruce and his colleagues had done over the last year of seeing how American metros, and this is a term we need to understand because in England we don't use it uh, this way. Metro is the metro region. It's not just the city itself, but what happens outside uh, it. We decided to join uh, with uh, uh, Brookings in extending the analysis of 100 American uh, metros by looking at 50 other major world uh, regions from Asia to Africa to Europe and elsewhere. Very difficult to get data on Africa, hence the fact that it's not there. That's not because it's not important, it's just we can't get access to that data. So this uh, global metro monitor, as it's uh, called, which was uh, done uh, in the last months and presented in November last year, uh, doesn't just focus on the economy of cities themselves, but on the wider area, because it's, as was said by Alex before, without the regional hinterland, you can't really talk about uh, the economy of cities. What is interesting is that these 150 themselves constitute 46% of global GDP. Just to highlight the importance that cities play in terms of the creation of jobs and creation of, uh, of, of wealth. They themselves, these 150 only, uh, contain 12% of global population. Why are we looking at metros? And here I'm using, I think, Julie Wagner's uh, images uh, on the screen. Why are we looking at metros rather than cities? Well, let's just take Chicago and Buenos Aires as two examples. 
These are the numbers of people who actually live in these cities themselves, i.e. the ones governed by the mayor, so to put it bluntly. Uh, this is actually the hinterland uh, and the number of people who matter. And if you did that to London, it would include something, instead of the 7.4 million people, it would include something like 17 million people in terms of the wider area. These are the numbers that exist in terms of the Chicago and the Buenos Aires metro land. But most importantly, this is the level of their economy. So to get these things right uh, is absolutely essential to the national economy. So what our study did, following on from the model established by Brookings for American Cities, is basically looked at two parameters, GDP growth, so economic growth and employment growth, over a, a, a long period before the recession, basically to see how cities have been doing over time. Right? This is uh, central to our understanding to know where to move on from there. Then we looked at what happened with very, very recent data over the two years of the recession, more or less that uh, period. And then after that, and this is quite novel, I have to say, is get very recent data up until 2010 in terms of how things are picking up. So briefly, what did we find? Uh, by the way, all of this is uh, fully uh, available on a dedicated website, interactive information, so I'm going to literally gloss over because of time. But it, there are some pictures which are emerging which I think are interesting in terms of understanding the dynamics and what we therefore have to do, as Alex was saying, in terms of setting a new vision for what happens next. We've got to learn and see what is happening there. This is at a very macroeconomic level. There's nothing I'm going to say in the next few minutes that explains why Istanbul has done better than uh, Shenzhen. There's certainly important global trends, but it gives you a map, it gives you an indication of what's happening. And if you look at this period uh, before the recession, you know, let's call it for many the golden period, uh, the darker color shows you, let's call it lower growth, and the lighter color, the yellowish colors, show you the pinnacles, the stronger concentrations of uh, high performance. You begin to see places like, remember, Dublin. Remember how many people wanted to work in Dublin, how many architects uh, moved there, how many developers invested there. I think there's one in the front row here. Um, you also see, in terms of the lighter colors, uh, obviously Asia, the tiger economies of the Far East, performing very well for a sustained period uh, up until the recession itself. The darker colors, or the, the blue-ish colors, you see parts of uh, Central Europe, uh, parts of the United States, but even in these two regions, there are major differences. We'll hear from Bruce perhaps why in a moment. Some areas of the West Coast are in lighter colors, uh, while others are much more uh, sort of stable. But in Eastern Europe itself, places like Warsaw uh, performed incredibly well, uh, and Moscow was doing very well up until a certain point. So what actually happened uh, during the global recession? And maybe we need to rethink that term in a moment in terms of the language we use. Well, I've just singled out two places. What the numbers mean here, if you can actually read them, is out of the 150, where did they move in terms of rank? Okay? If they were at position number two and then ended up at number 150, they moved, they lost 148 places. And I'm sorry to say that Dublin lost 138 places. So it actually dramatically dropped because of, let's call it, the sort of bubble economy, much of it uh, related to real estate uh, investment, sort of perhaps artificially uh, fueled by the demand for housing, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, it's interesting to see that in the United States, 
quite a lot of cities. Phoenix, I just happen to have highlighted, but there are many others we could choose from. Detroit would be the more obvious, perhaps, to many in this room, also had a very tough time uh, during the recession. But as you can see on the right, and interestingly, even in South America, on the whole, things remained relatively stable despite this uh, global recession. Was it a global recession? Well, if you look at what's happened in the last year, year and a half, it's what some refer to as the Protestant recession, uh, focused uh, very much in sort of global north. Well, of course, Ireland is a Catholic country and uh, would break the rule. But what you see here is that the strength of the recovery, therefore how much they've, these cities or metro areas have actually moved up vertically again. Amazingly, you see uh, that Istanbul, rises to the top after having fallen really quite uh, down pretty dramatically. Um, what you see is that in the United States, quite a lot of the cities have actually done pretty well in the last uh, few, uh, year, well, year and a half. In Europe, it's pretty tough, even though there's a variation uh, in, in that. But you still see some very large negative numbers. But look at South America, how stable, in a way, that has remained. The BRIC economies. Uh, so to speak, for themselves. And of course, Shenzhen, Shanghai, and other cities uh, are remaining in, in a very strong position. Now, where have these cities uh, maintained their position is actually quite intriguing. Uh, what you see here is the ranking of the fastest growing economies since uh, 2000, in 2010. Uh, and you see Istanbul at the top, etc. Now, if I flick on, in green, are basically cities in uh, low-income countries. And you can see that it's there where the sort of the greatest recovery is happening. So the conclusions from this work, the sort of tentative conclusions, which are macro in their sort of picture, is that there's been in this sort of overall period a marked shift in growth towards lower-income metros in emerging markets. And therefore, it's the central uh, sit uh, situation that we have to really focus on in the global north. In many ways, these countries followed their national economies. The US was hit hardest. We'll hear more about that. The U EU has been the slowest to recover. And Asia has been mainly unaffected. Now, in the last minutes, Alex, let me turn to the sort of detail we've done on four cities. And I will be quite um, fast on this, because I think the message is very, very simple in terms of what has happened. We chose four cities which basically faced exactly the problem that we're dealing with today about 15, 20 years ago. Why? Because we wanted to see what they did, which perhaps made a difference. And we ended up with Barcelona, uh, Turin, uh, Munich, and Seoul. And I'll touch on each one of them uh, individually. Now, Turin is an important uh, city in the northwest of Italy because of its direct link, let's say, to the uh, automotive industries of the United States. It was the well-known uh, center of fiat. And importantly, as you can see in this map, it sits in an area called Piemonte, which is the region of Piedmont. Uh, the, state, the names of the regions become very important in European cities uh, because of the collaboration, we'll come back to this at the end, between city and state in, in terms of uh, investing in their futures and in, in sustaining jobs. Um, effectively, why Turin is interesting is that uh, it's a very important city in and of itself. It's part of one of the uh, major economies on the world. It's known as the Italian Detroit, but in a good way, before Detroit collapsed. 
uh, Fiat, the Italian uh, manufacturer, has something like 50% of, of the whole of the national uh, sector of employment. But it's also been very, very strong in diversifying its manufacturing base uh, into aerospace, into textiles. It's actually the, the center of the slow food movement. So, I mean, it has lots sort of going for it, but it had a massive crash in the 70s, lost 100,000 jobs in fiat and sort of related industries and uh, major supply chain streamlining. So what did they do? Well, I mentioned Piedmont. Uh, there was a collaboration between the city and the region in basically knocking on the door of the European Union and getting something like two and a half billion pounds of money which went straight into the local economy. Very important that land use planning was used intelligently to say don't take all the industries out even though you're losing jobs, invest in the middle of the city and do something with it and invest in those difficult things like transport and high-speed rail just at the moment that you think you don't need them. And we also discovered the incredible important site of universities. The Polytechnic of Turin effectively was able to uh, uh, foster growth in those areas that otherwise, and areas of expertise that would have otherwise been lost. So you have a city that not only invents a new car, which is incredibly successful, but it turns old factories, the Lingotto uh, factory, amazing because it had this racetrack on the roof. Some of you will remember that amazing building into sort of uh, shopping, uh, research center, and also universities there, but invested heavily in the, in the quality of its environment. And here you see that despite the drop, obviously, in the recession that all these cities have uh, experienced, the economy on the whole has sustained itself pretty well. Let me quickly go through Barcelona. Catalonia is the region which surrounds uh, the city of Barcelona, a strong port city, which of course had its own uh, enormous problems. After many years of Franco, 40 years of dictatorship, the city became completely isolated, in fact nearly cut back for political reasons, and really confronted the major problems of sort of global competition throughout the 70s. Well, they sort of reinvented themselves. They used the Olympics to a degree. Uh, they've named themselves the capital of the European, uh, of the Mediterranean. The, that notion doesn't exist, but it's very successful in just getting younger people, uh, students and others, to move there. And they've invested in some key areas in the city uh, which have created you know, significant numbers of new jobs through a series of these uh, initiatives that you see here. Again, importantly, without repeating some of the main themes, connectivity. Very, very important. You can't leave transport out of the notion of creating new jobs, Bruce, and I think you've been pushing that very strongly in the States, but they're not really listening to you. Uh, the investment in the port has been absolutely massive, uh, and uh, very recently the Chinese have put in three billion pounds in terms of the investment. So not only has this become an incredibly desirable city, again, it's where younger people from the whole of Europe are actually going to find uh, jobs and building on the quality of life. And there it is. Again, you see uh, the statistics over the years have improved. Munich is known um, as uh, the German Silicon Valley. This is work which Max Nathan uh, and others in the room have uh, led uh, for us with Philip Rode. It's got all the great sort of signature companies there, BMW, Siemens, etc. Now, the whole point is they could have left. If things had been just abandoned to global competition, to all the pressures I've talked about, they could have just all left. And instead, what has happened 
is that despite the uh, European uh, the, the recession and the reunification, let's not forget and the impact that had on the German economy, the combination between the state of Bavaria and the city of Munich led to a whole series of very positive initiatives. Uh, manpower, investment in social capital, the right sort of people in government rather than the wrong sort of people in government. They call it geeks in government there. It's just people who could either be working in industry and doing top research or actually in government positions, partly because they're well paid. And again, we found that the role of the university in R&D made a massive difference in terms of what uh, the team has called institutional thickness. So you get a city which is active, it's changing, it's growing. Let me move to the last case of Seoul, Alex, before passing on to Bruce. Now, Seoul is particularly a uh, uh, unique phenomenon, not only because it's a mega city, it's nearly 10 million as opposed to the few million that we've been looking at uh, before. Uh, it also has a very different sort of status because uh, the central government is much more heavily involved. But an interesting case study to understand from that point of view. It was the heart of the miracle economy or nearly 30 years of double-digit growth um, and very strongly sort of export orientation. I mean, it, it sort of invented uh, a number of products which are now household names, Samsung, LG, and others. But it suffered enormously or potentially suffered from the 97 Asian financial crisis and just growing competitions from all the other countries around them. So what did they do? Uh, strong central government uh, investment, pretty tough metropolitan organization itself, uh, massive um, uh, leverage in terms of the different companies that were there, and a couple of very, very interesting projects which instead of being left to die, 1920s, 1930s factories, again, this could be anywhere that we know in Rotterdam or East London, instead of just leaving them to, to die as being unable to uh, um, absorb the facilities of, let's call it, the competitive markets, they transform from that to that. You now have vertical factories, which are fashion-based or IT-based, which employ something like 100,000 people in the space of a decade. I mean, those are the sort of numbers, and these are the positive examples, and here you see it again represented in the growth in the economy. So what did we find, Alex, and this is really where I want to conclude. Uh, we found a number of key things which cut across all these examples, all four of these examples. There can be many more. I'm sure there are other examples where maybe it hasn't worked so well. But certainly the success stories of these cities which have shown resilience in the face of sort of the economic decline is the presence of active, aligned, and intentional government, a government that knows what it wants to do. And that may seem obvious, but if you ask yourself, well, what is the government in the southeast of England? Well, there isn't one. This government, national government, has just abolished the regional development agency. So who's going to worry about that? This may come up in discussion in a moment. And certainly institutional partnerships is significant. We talked about universities. I'll come back to that. The notion that a city is not alone and actually has to connect in terms of internationalizing its own presence, making uh, connections from city to other places across the world, global positioning as Barcelona has done, branding in terms of exports and trade has been important. The knowledge economy is an obvious thing to many of us, but the fact that the cities invested in the knowledge economy, keeping young and intelligent people with university degrees in the center and not allowing them to suburbanize has been significant and again connected very much to modernization of manufacturing but also to land use 
plans. And the obvious thing for an architect uh, like me and someone interested in urban design, the fact that there's an investment both in human capital but in the quality of the, of the space, the famous motorway uh, on the top left which was turned uncovered demolished by the mayor of Seoul and turned into this rather beautiful river amenity in the middle of the city has been copied in many ways by the investments made in the public squares of Turin and elsewhere. And last, even, but certainly not least, even though we haven't found yet the, sort of, uh, the data that supports uh, the argument as strongly as we would like, uh, there's beginning to be in all these cities a recognition that the green economy is the sort of next uh, stage in terms of where we want to go. So, if we go back to that map, uh, that graph that I showed you, which put Human Development Index, which includes, of course, a strong, healthy and sustainable economy, against the energy uh, footprint, you can begin to see that with the sorts of uh, investments and policies that I've talked about, uh, the sheer guts of cities to actually go out there and not allow uh, the, the trends and the economic trends to go the opposite way. There is a potential, I think, of making cities uh, be at the heart of a sort of sustainable economy over the years. So that's the work that we've been able to do, and I don't know whether I pass straight on to Bruce or Alex will make the link. Thank you very much. Great, thanks, Ricky. I mean, I think what, what was really striking about that is um, the changes, the global changes, the importance of cities, although the differences between uh, lower-income countries and higher-income countries, but also just some of those common lessons. I think that's one of the things I want to come back to. How do you learn lessons from cities when so many are in, in different situations? How can you kind of transfer these? But I think some very powerful messages um, about the importance of taking action rather than just letting things happen to a city, just relying on the market. Taking action seems to be a common theme. And I'm sure that's one of the things that Bruce is, is going to touch on as well. So, uh, Bruce Katz, Vice President of the Brookings Institution, Founding Director of the Brookings Metropolitan Policy Programme. I know you regularly advise US policymakers, and I think you're going to talk about a vision of the next American economy, um, what it's driven by, how it's going to happen, and I think some, some advice for uh, what, what Obama should be doing about this, and the cities themselves. And, and maybe some advice for uh, David Cameron as well. Um, <laughs> so, um, first of all, Alex, thank you um, for chairing this, and it's a joy to be here with uh, Ricky and Philip. Uh, this was a great collaboration between Brookings and LSE. And, and frankly, I think it's appropriate that um, we have this conversation uh, the day after the chancellor puts forward uh, the plan for growth. Because what we were trying to do in the United States, informed by the LSE work, was to put forward a vision at the macro scale uh, for not just uh, the recovery of the American economy, but the renewal of the American economy, and then connect it to the metro engines that drive our economy like they drive others. And, and the reason why we shifted our work at Brookings is because of this. Um, the recession was a wake-up call for the United States. Uh, we lost eight and a half million jobs. One in nine people are still unemployed. The figures are improving, but slowly. Uh, one in seven people are in poverty. And as everyone knows here, the way we measure poverty in the United States is at incredibly low levels. And the big kicker is three in four people uh, either lost their job or knew someone who did. Uh, this was unlike prior recessions. It pretty much touched all of our country, 
and touched a large portion of our citizenry um, and it has left the country in a very different state. Um, but there's no going back uh, because we do not want to return to the economy that precipitated the recession because it was anything but normal. So we have put forward a vision for the American economy, uh, which is a vision of an economy driven by exports, powered by low carbon, um, fueled by innovation, and rich with opportunity. And this is a vision where the United States exports more, becomes more globally integrated, wastes less, innovates in what matters, produces and deploys more of what we invent, and actually builds an economy that works for working families. Now, that economy will be driven by metropolitan areas, uh, because metropolitan areas are where the assets of nations tend to be concentrated and where the connections and, and linkage are leveraged. The United States still tends to think of itself as time, at times as a rural nation or a small town nation, when it's actually a nation that is powered by these metropolitan engines. So our recommendation to policymakers at all levels of government, and frankly to the private sector, uh, is that the American economy will be renewed, the American economy will be restructured and rebalanced if we unleash the entrepreneurial energies of, of our metro engines. Um, and particularly at a time uh, when our politics are polarized uh, and the partisan divide has grown even more dramatic since the 2010 elections, we believe that this renewal of the economy will happen from the ground up. So let's start with the vision thing, as uh, the first President Bush liked to call it, um, and let's start um, with exports. Uh, our vision of the American economy is a nation that trades more goods and, more seam, uh, and services seamlessly with the world, particularly with those nations that are rapidly urbanizing and industrializing. And the reason for that is that we've crossed a global Rubicon. Uh, we now have the big countries, Brazil, India, and China, with a larger share of global GDP than the United States. And that share, as you can tell, is expected to grow within the next five years. Uh, as Ricky mentioned before, uh, we, we, we crossed a Rubicon for, uh, several years ago when, for the first time in recorded history, half of the world's population lives in cities and urban places. Well, that share is intended to grow to 60% by 2030. And the impact of the recession, as Ricky also showed, is a shifting of the locus of economic power uh, to the cities of Asia and Latin America. These were the highest performing metros in 29 and 2010, obviously principally located in Asia and Latin America. These were the worst performing metros, primarily located in Europe and the United States. The U.S. needs to reorient our economy to global demand, and we are a laggard in this regard, partly because of a large domestic market. Only 13% of the U.S. GDP comes from exports, and you see the higher levels for China, Canada, India, Japan, and the EU, and the EU obviously hides the powerhouse of, of Germany. Uh, our transport networks are clogged and congested. We like to talk about the American economy as a first-class economy with a third-class infrastructure, as any one of you know when you travel to JFK or LAX or any of our airports, for that matter. And Americans don't get out much. 
right? We're the most diverse country in the world. Only 28% of Americans have a passport. Every time a mayor leaves a city to go on a train mission, it's almost a criminal act in the local press. So the question for the U.S. is can we even get back into the export game? And we think the answer is decidedly yes. Despite the fact that most Americans don't know what, the Ameri what our economy manufactures, we still are a global leader in the manufacture of aircraft and spacecraft and high-level machinery and high-precision surgical instruments and high-quality pharmaceutical products. So we still participate in global manufacturing, partly because of the military base of our economy. And tradable services, whether it's education or health care or business consulting or real estate consulting, we had a $152 billion surplus in 2008 in tradable services, and that's going up like a rocket. Our demographics are very healthy from our perspectives, and one in eight Americans are foreign-born, um, and the bulk of the growth will continue to be in diverse populations. For the first time in the 2010 census, a majority of children under the age of three in the United States are minority. It's hard to even call people minorities anymore, given the shift in our population. This is the platform for global exchange and commerce going forward in the United States. So when the president went before the country in the early part of 2010 and said, we need to double exports in the next five years, he was basically just dealing with, with reality. Our recovery and our renewal will not be driven by domestic consumption. It will be driven by global demand. And the act of doubling exports in five years would create anywhere from three and a half million to five million jobs in an economy that lost eight and a half. Second hallmark of the next economy is low carbon. And again, here, the United States, a laggard, right, on climate, a laggard on the shift to the clean economy, now needs to move back into the vanguard. Because everything's about to change. The energy we use is about to shift from an almost exclusive focus on carbon-based fuels to, to a more diverse mix. The infrastructure we build is going to move from 20th century modes of transport and energy to systems that are faster and more technologically enabled. The products we buy are going to shift from these high carbon gas guzzlers to a more eclectic baskets of sustainable goods. And the built environment is going to change. The homes we live in, uh, the office and retail buildings we frequent, are going to be more efficient in their use of energy, uh, water, electricity, and better arrayed so we can spend less, walk more, and live a higher quality of life. Our competitors understand the need to transition to this low-carbon economy because of the jobs and investment and growth that it potentially represents. Uh, China is hell-bent on being the world's green producer. And they are out-investing the United States. You particularly see it with regard to high-speed rail, right, and other forms of new products. So the issue, again, for the United States is can we play in the low-carbon revolution as a market proposition? Our research shows that there's already a strong base and a growing base of about 2.2 million green jobs in the United States, covering about seven different sectors and about 40 subsectors. But most importantly, from our perspective, 
we have dramatic advantages if we, quote unquote, can get our act together. Domestic demand, advanced research, venture capital, entrepreneurial dynamism. Third piece, which relates obviously to the first two, is innovation, because innovation has always been the catalyst of economic growth. And the question here for the United States is not just whether we can continue to be in the vanguard of idea generation, but whether we can use ideas and invention to spur production and deployment. We believe that we are in a period of technological progress and acceleration, and we experience it every day. Self-driving vehicles, smart homes, remote health care, uh, this is the kind, these are the kind of technologies that are obviously cool in some respects. They're also the technologies that are either here or they are coming. And the country that basically can invent this new stuff and then more importantly begin to produce and deploy it for domestic and global markets is the country that's going to be at the vanguard of innovation. Again, the question, can we be and continue to be the innovation nation? These are pretty stark statistics about the share of bachelor's degree in the United States that go to science and engineering. We rank 45th out of 93 countries in that. We've seen a shift in the, um, in the sale and exchange of advanced technology products. We had a surplus in the 1990s, which dramatically shifted to a deficit as we begin to see other countries uh, begin to manufacture the goods the technology products that essentially we invent. Going forward, if we don't produce more in the United States, we will innovate less. The U.S. needs to make things again. So it's time to rediscover our innovation mojo. Um, not, just, not just at MIT, frankly, and not just at Stanford, but on the factory floors again. Uh, and in the voc ed places. America used to be a place of tinkerers. It used to be a place where the average citizen in their garage, right, where so many iconic American companies started, invented things. We need to get back to that. Final piece of the next economy um, is opportunity. Because we've had decades of slippage in, in opportunity in the United States. Um, because as we shifted to a consumption and debt-laden economy, we began to see wages suppressed and income inequities grow. Now, in theory, if we can export more, we should see some salutary benefit for wages because exporting companies pay higher wages and have better benefits. The low-carbon economy, in our view, obviously in the view of the Chinese, uh, is a platform for job growth across many occupations and skills, high, medium, and low. And again, innovation is always the catalyst for economic growth uh, in our country and as, as in others. We need to get real smart, real fast. Um, we are going through the most profound demographic transition uh, in the world in many respects. We will shift from about 25% of our workforce being African-American and Hispanic to about 40% of our workforce being African-American and Hispanic in a very relatively short period of time. Here's the issue. We have huge educational disparities in the United States. These are bachelor's degrees. I could show associate degrees. I should go high school performance. This used to be seen as an issue of equity and an issue of fairness. It's an issue of competitiveness for the United States, and it's an issue, frankly, of national security. 
So that's a macro vision. That's a plan for growth, frankly, for the American economy. But here's the next piece. Uh, it will be shaped, it will be determined, it will be delivered by metropolitan America. This is the real heart of the American economy. These are high 100 metropolitan areas, cities and suburbs and exurbs and rural areas together that constitute two-thirds of our population and generate three-quarters of our GDP and concentrate essentially 75, 80, 85, 90, 95 percent of the national share of the assets that drive national economies. These economies pack a powerful punch. Chicago is 67% of the population of the state of Illinois. It's close to 80% of the economic output of that state. Seattle, half the population of the state of Washington. It's almost 70% of the economic output of the state of Washington. 47 of the 50 states have a majority of their GDP generated by their metropolitan areas, including such rural states as Nebraska and Iowa and Kansas and, Ar and Arkansas. America, in some respects, doesn't know who it is anymore and how much of its economy and how much of its society is metropolitan-based. Now, the reasons why metropolitan economies are powerful is because they congregate and concentrate the networks of large firms and small and medium-sized enterprises and advanced research institutions and communities and community colleges and universities and business associations and yes, something that some of our political class will not like, government, right? This is the, this is the network economy. This is the agglomeration economy. Because of that, metro areas or the top 100 metros are at the vanguard of the shift to the next economy. Um, they already lead exports. And because they already lead um, computers and chemicals and consulting, they are on the vanguard of trade with China, India, and Brazil. These are the top four exporting economies in the United States, more than $50 billion apiece. These are the top 10. This is essentially 30% of American exports. It's not just the large places. These are small and medium-sized metropolitan areas. Wichita in the center of the country, 28% of its economy coming from exports. Now, obviously, that's the production of goods and services. These are also our air hubs, our sea hubs, our rail hubs. These are logistical centers of the United States. With regard to low carbon, wind, solar, energy research consulting, and retrofit, not surprisingly, is concentrated in the top 100 metros because that's where people live and that's where our buildings are located. And finally, with regard to innovative assets, this is where the most educated citizenry is located. This is where the large sums of, of advanced research flow. This is where patenting is occurring. And this is where venture capital essentially comes from to convert ideas into production. So again, top 100 metros are going to shape, determine, and deliver the next American economy if they essentially are unleashed. So here's the question for the United States. If you want to move to this kind of economy, your national government would do some essential things. You'd price carbon, 
You'd invest in advanced R&D and energy at scale for a sustained period of time. You'd invest in transformative infrastructure. You'd overhaul immigration. You'd invest in education and skills. Here's the current state of our body politic. Madmen basically rule our airwaves. The federal government is broken, at war with itself. The states are broke. So our proposition to the American political business civic class is this. We're going to have to do this the hard way through a pragmatic caucus of metropolitan corporate civic and political leaders who build this next economy from the ground up. Because these group of people put place over party and collaboration over conflict, and we believe evidence over emotion. They wake up every day with the view of making their place better. Now, in metropolitan America, cities and suburbs, the prior economy celebrated Starbucks and Stadium, right? Everyone pretty much wanted to do the same thing, irrespective of market location or condition. The next economy, by contrast, celebrates differentiation, right? What Raleigh does is different from what Charlotte does is different from Atlanta does. So the message is to build on strengths, build on special assets, attributes, and advantages. We are taking the principles of private sector business planning and we are trying to apply them to metropolitan areas because we think many of the same principles that companies use to build off their assets and attributes apply to cities and metropolitan areas. What we've done at Brookings for the last 18 months, when we sort of just got fed up with the policy stuff, is we went out and started working with corporate civic and political leaders in Northeast Ohio, Youngstown, Cleveland, and Akron, Minneapolis, St. Paul, and Greater Seattle. And in each place, we worked with different kinds of leaders. In Northeast Ohio, we worked with the Fund for Economic Future, which is a nonprofit intermediary working with manufacturing firms all across that area. In Minneapolis-St. Paul, we worked with the mayors of both cities and the suburban mayors and the business leadership. And in the Puget Sound, we worked with city and suburban mayors and the business leadership as well. In each place, this group of leaders declared a focus for their region, which obviously is customized and aligned to what they're good at or the challenges they face. Northeast Ohio, not surprisingly, how do you retool an auto supply chain for the manufacture and production of a completely different set of goods, whether it's clean energy, whether it's the healthcare sector, whether it's flexible electronics. If you can make ball bearings for, for cars, you can make ball bearings for wind turbines or for things that you put in your body. Minneapolis, St. Paul, a, a place, powerful economy, Fortune 500 firms, very little entrepreneurial dynamism. How do you begin to change the culture of that metropolis through business accelerators, business incubators, the this, this sort of um, vanguard of that movement so you can bring small business growth. And finally, with regard to Puget Sound, not surprisingly with Microsoft, not surprisingly with some of the largest building energy efficiency firms in the country, how do you become the cockpit of a global move towards energy efficiency through the technolo technology realm? In each of these places, We've developed specific strategies, but even more importantly, investment prospectuses for the public and private sector. As new governors come in, whether in the state of Ohio, or in the state of Minnesota, or in the state of Washington, the challenge 
is to invert the Federalist pyramid in the United States, to move from a top-down system of federal policy or state policies, may sound a little familiar to the UK, um, where the locals are leading, where the metros are driving, because they're closest to the ground and they're the most cognizant and aware of their assets attributes. We've already received investments from these states for the kind of activities that we've prescribed. Now going forward, what we'd like to see, and I'm almost done, um, is the national government and the states basically have a new perspective on urban and metropolitan policy. And it's not that complicated. Help those places that help themselves and become intentional and deliberate about their growth. This is the 3010 initiative in Los Angeles. So in the middle of the recession, the mayor and the business leaders and civic and community leaders were able to get voters to vote for essentially a $40 billion sales tax over 30 years to build out metropolitan transit in Los Angeles. Well, given the recession, what we've basically had is the mayor go to the federal government and say, what if you were able to give me low-cost capital backed by this 30-year sales tax? We can build out the transit system in 10 years. That's 160,000 jobs in a county which has three-quarters of a million unemployed. This is a 90-10 plan. 90% of this money is coming from the LA metropolis. We want to turn our system on its head and have leadership of the next economy come from the ground up. Now eventually we're going to have to get back to the national scale. We may not get back there for three years or five years or seven years or ten years. It's going to be damn polarized and damn partisan. Eventually, to build exports, we need transformative infrastructure. Eventually, to move to low carbon, we need advanced or transformative investment in advanced R&D. Eventually, to move to innovation, we need a manufacturing policy in the United States. And eventually, to move to opportunity, we need the national government to commit in its own way to upgrading the education and skills of a diverse nation. But over time, we think, or during this period, while the federal government is on its typical frolic and detour, uh, we think the leadership can come from below. Now, what does all this mean for the UK? Five seconds or less. Um, you were like us. You drunk the Kool-Aid of consumption and debt in innovating in financial engineering instead of the right stuff. Well, I, you know, when you read Osborne's speech yesterday, Sounds like he wants to rebalance the economy. I'm not sure he's put forward a policy mix, frankly, to get you there, but at least he's saying the right words. Second, this localism agenda that is taking hold in the UK, I think doesn't quite have the right geography. It has the right impulse to devolve down. We can argue about whether it's really doing that in any meaningful way. But the real geography of the economy is not at the city scale. It's at the metro scale. So if you're going to follow some kind of devolution agenda uh, in the UK, you might as well get the geography right, as opposed to a geography that was constructed in the 18th century. And finally, the same thing, the same playbook that we're following in the United States, which I frankly think will become an idea virus, and this is a helpful idea virus. It won't just be everyone chasing life sciences or building stadia or building convention centers or even just going after the green economy in some kind of ubiquitous way. It will be each place really sorting out what they're good at in the global economy and then building from that at scale. 
That's what I think can happen in the United States. That's what I think can happen here. And with that, I will shut up. Thanks. Some, some really powerful kind of statistics and sense of, uh, of some of the differences. I mean, I was really struck by the uh, the uh, scale, the kind of by which China is out investing the U.S. Um, but some of your points about the importance of innovation at all levels, differentiation and building on strengths, I think are really key. Um, we're going to have Q and A now. For anyone who missed any of that, because there's a lot of information, uh, there will be a podcast, hopefully available tomorrow, so it's all being recorded. But. Um, I mean, one of the, the questions that, that struck me is there are so many differences between cities, but you seem to be able to draw some common lessons. I mean, how do you, how do you transfer experiences uh, between such very different cities and really learn lessons? What are the key things you think are transferable? Ricky. Well, in, in what I was saying at the end, I think um, there, there, there are some very simple lessons about um, governance which are transferable. I, mean, I, I think um, without a city recognizing that there's a, a wider hinterland, whether you call it a state if you're in Germany, whether you, uh, region, whether in, in Italy, I don't know what you call it in England, question. Well, it's a, no, it's, yeah. it's, but it's an important it's, it's issue. A good uh, yeah. And even in, in the USA, there was a, uh, there's a question because you have hardly anything in between the city level and then the mega sort of state level. Uh, I think, that going back to your question, that notion of you know, what we call vertical and aligned governance, where you know, at least three tiers of government, at least working together, is a very, very simple and important message. I would say, I mean, there are many things, but I'd say that would be one thing, which I think resonated to a degree at the conference we had in, in, in Chicago um, a few months ago. I think a lot, of, a lot of the policymakers, the US policymakers, were looking around, scratching their heads, and saying, yeah, but what, we don't have that political infrastructure. So at some level, this requires a redesign of the way decisions are made. But. Yeah, I, I think what, um, and sorry to this part of the room for <laughs> hiding behind this thing here. Um, I, I think what resonated in, in Chicago was this common story of intentionality and purpose. That um, when you're flat on your back, as Torino was in the late 70s because of the collapse of fiat, uh, you get up, you dust yourself off, and you begin to think about, okay, how do we diversify our economy? How do we build on the legacy of industrial design in some very creative way? How do we restore the core? So if we're going through a rough patch, we don't decentralize, as obviously very many American metros have. So this, this notion of intentionality and deliberation and purpose from the ground up, I think, really resonated. In the U.S., we tend to talk more about governance than government. Because the economy is a networked economy, and our view is that the production of the next economy will also be done through networks. And so government in some places is strong and articulate and forward-leaning and affirmative in vision. And in other places, frankly, it's the business and civic and university sectors that take the lead. And that's why when you see our business plans, sometimes the mayors are leading, and other times they're just along for the ride. Um, but, but the key is these networks that, that begin to grow um, and begin to mature and evolve. So it's getting that kind of leadership, right, really, and, and trying to kind of get governance. I mean, Ricky, you said it was a, it's a simple message, and I think it is, but it's clearly, I mean, you just need to look at most yeah. countries. It's not easy to get it right. Yeah, but I, I think we can also exaggerate that just as long as if you've got a good mayor, everything's going to be fine. No, right? absolutely. You know, and, yeah. I, and I think uh, I mean, a lot of the work we did, uh, led by uh, Andrea Colantonio, when we did interviews, in, he did interviews in Barcelona and Turin in particular, 
we were surprised to find that there are other institutions, mm. uh, banks, foundations, university, 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 which played a major role in sort of standing on the side but, but helping. I mean, um, a small example uh, is the, you know, the, the Polytechnic of Turin, which I gave an example. Mm. You know, here, as Bruce has just repeated, fiat in decline, right? 100,000 people. Uh, you'd think that the engineering school, the Polytechnic of Turin, would also go in decline, would go in a sort of mm. spiral. No, they did exactly the opposite. And we have these skills. What we're going to do is up that. Uh, and um, they started attract, uh, doing courses for, um, in, in, in English and mm. in other languages. And as a result of that, Chinese engineers have come to study car engine design in Turin uh, and then take that know-how back. Yeah. That's motivated or sort of or generated anyway uh, a new form of investment. And, uh, so it's a, it's a v positive spiral. Uh, but therefore the role of the institutions uh, on the side is just as important as, you know, what we say, leadership, because it's, not, it's just not enough to say that, I think. Well, I mean, I think when, we t when I talk about leadership, I, I don't think I mean the mayors. So actually, yeah. I think when we, whenever we talk about leadership in the centre of cities, it is exactly what you're talking about, which is the public sector, the private sector, and it is, as Bruce was saying, in some places the mayor may be leading, in some places, frankly, they're being taken along, and that's a good thing. Um, so, uh, I mean, I would agree with you when I talk about leadership, and I think one of the problems is leadership is so often seen to be about governance and about mayors, and, and governance becomes a solution, but I Actually, it is about institutions, and it's about a whole range of institutions, public and private sector, trying to kind of lead the way and have a sense of where the city's going. But let's, uh, let's open it up to, to questions. So could you just uh, put up your hand? Um, I believe we've got some microphones around the room. So if we could just start here and then come here. Um, and just, just there. My name is Liz Dunn. I'm in the city's program. I, I think I want to ask Bruce a question kind sure. of about the, the, the practical problems associated with aligning a city with its larger metropolitan region in the United States. And I'll use Seattle as an example because it's the one I know the best where the Puget Sound Regional Council does try very hard to sort of corral the herd the chickens, whatever the phrase is. But in fact, there's a great deal of frustration within the city of Seattle with sort of the inability to corral the suburban cities that are part of that l larger metropolitan region. And what happens is that um, money that Seattle wants to spend on public transit still gets spent on road building. So that the densest parts of Seattle are willing to accept more density. The suburban yeah. areas are not. And, sure. and so I think there's a real challenge there. So not at all arguing with the approach, no. but just asking about the implementation. Great. I mean, great question. So that kind of tension between the cities and, and the wider areas. I'll, I'll get a few questions and then just come back. So there's questions just here. Um, are we on? Yes. Well, hi. Uh, my name is Mike Hayes. I'm a fairly elderly urban planner in the UK. Um, thank you very much for making these public lectures. Thank you for two superb uh, and inspiring presentations, which I enjoyed enormously. My experience has been in working in major cities in Liverpool and Glasgow and London and, mm. and in one small city with a mayor. And I was sitting thinking how, Bruce in particular, you've rediscovered what I already knew and presented it extraordinarily well. The notion of leadership, of good governance, of vision, of networks, mm. of building on your strengths. 
So what is the problem in the UK? Okay. And uh, my reflection is there, is there is a disconnect between your analysis, which is right, and the experience that I have and many others have of doing things at a metropolitan level, mm. at, a, at an urban community level, and our government at the moment. And your yes. point about localism, where we have a notion of localism at the moment that appears to be about neighborhoods, although we also, to be fair, have, and I think they're right, and I would encourage them, some strong ideas around city mayors and, and, and the like, and regional mayors as well, okay. which my dimension is good. And the question looking forward, because mm. old people always reflect on the past, is yeah. how do you take this body of knowledge yeah. and use it to inform the body politic, so not locally, but nationally, that so that that bounces back yeah. to local political action and leadership and all the rest of it? Great, great question. So how do you make sure that all the things we've learned are actually informing that, that national dialogue? Great. I think there's just one more question just over here, and then we'll come back to, to the panel. Oh, maybe I get up so you guys can see me. Uh, my name is Rafa Hain. I work currently for London Borough of Camden. Um, great presentations. I uh, really enjoyed this, especially uh, Bruce's presentation. A lot of opti optimism, very American-like. Um, <laughs> What I, uh, my question is that I think the challenge you will face, you, you have it all thought through very well, and it presents very well. I think the challenge you face is, uh, will be the support of people on the, on the ground, like people at the, at the, at the local level. Uh, I recently uh, got back from California. I used to work in Silicon Valley. And I was very disappointed because I found out there is still not much support for for the green stuff, like you know, the high-speed link from San Francisco to LA, it's still way ahead, okay. uh, way behind the schedule. Uh, I also got to know from my colleagues uh, in the city that some other states, like Florida, they reject money, government money for high-speed. Yeah. So it seems like you know, Americans are still in the mindset 100 years ago, and it's hard to change that. And without support of, of them, it will be hard for you to proceed with your plans. How do you change that? So Thank how, you. Do you, how do you change that yes. mindset? How do you avoid those disappointing? Yeah, great question. Okay, so some of the practical problems, some of the, uh, well, the uh, challenges of uh, getting this research to inform the national debate, and then how do you avoid this kind of constant disappointment of people on the ground that things are talked about, they don't happen? Bruce? Okay, I'm, I'm going to just pop up here because it's sort of weird not to see yeah, this it's part of the crowd here. Um, <laughs> So um, let's, let's start in reverse, and then, you know, on, on the green stuff, the clean stuff. Um, here, here's, here's the political issue in the United States. Um, basically, everyone associated the climate issue and the low carbon issue with the Democrats um, and with the environment as opposed to, to markets. Americans are a pretty mercantile bunch, you know, and I think the biggest shift in the past... 10 years is among um, major investors in the venture capital community and what I would call the producer class. The producer class being the tech and the manufacturing firms in the country. And I see, because they are global, I see them making a bet increasingly on low carbon, not because they're a bunch of environmentalists. In fact, they don't use the word green, they use the word clean. But I, I think that will ultimately affect American politics. 
Because as we all know, American politics tends to align itself ultimately with business. So this is a huge transition that we're going through. And the business class, not uniformly, obviously there are a lot of heavy polluters who don't want to change at all, but they are sort of leading the way. The other thing I would just say is we have a very large military economy, which unlike the regular, regular economy is command and control. And the military is under directives to radically reduce greenhouse gas emissions on their bases and with regard to their supply chain. In the past, the most innovative sector at times of our economy has tended to be the military sector. Um, difficult conversation to have, particularly at the London School of Economics, but no, no. As, as an American, I, I think we need to understand the role of the military economy and the transfer of innovation in that sector over to the civilian sector, particularly with regard to clean energy. With regard to governance, this question over here, um, look, we inherited your system, right? I mean, we're, we were a colony. So the brilliance of the United States is let's look like 17th century England, you know? And um, so Northeast, Midwest, and the Northwest, not the South in many regards, inherited this, this crazy quilt of municipalities in the, in the suburban communities. Um, I think the U.S., you know, is the great experiment across these top 100 metros, right? We're not waiting for the regs from Washington, D.C. Those places that will collaborate to compete and those places that will make sound and sensible transport investments and begin to integrate their labor and housing supply across city and suburban lines will ultimately be in the vanguard of spatial efficiency in the United States and I think ultimately of competitiveness. And so if Seattle doesn't want to play well together, fine. Other places will. And then Seattle can fall behind. I mean, we have a competition culture across our cities and metros, and that's what's going to drive this. Denver's there. Portland's obviously been there for a while. I think Minneapolis, St. Paul there. Chicago is getting there. Philly's getting there. You know, everyone gets to watch each other, and those who don't want to play well can stay behind. Though Seattle obviously has Microsoft, Boeing, and a whole bunch of other things. Um, and the last piece about how to take this from the national dialogue down, I'll just say one thing, which is a little abstract, but I think it sort of gets to this. The United States is a celebrity entrepreneurial culture. We're all waiting for the next Steve Jobs to go in his garage and invent something which will transform the world. What we, what we need to move towards is an understanding that Steve Jobs is only able to succeed because of networks of advanced research institutions and SMEs and capital and all the rest of that stuff, which exist in cities and metropolitan areas. So the narrative at the national scale of networked, co-produced economies needs to blow down. But frankly, I think cities and metros are already there. It's the national leadership that lives in a different center. So it's, it's getting away from that kind of charismatic leader almost to actually all of these things happen in a context, in a better context, and the networks really matter. Ricky, some can, can I just reflect rather than try and answer each one of the questions, some of which were very much directed at the Bruce in the United States, but perhaps picking up from um, the point made here on my right. I, I think it's always problem is that, you know, everything's wrong here, right? Um, and why here is it so terrible? Um, and I, I, I would say, actually, it's not that bad, and I, I would like to go back. Uh, but I think part of the answer to your question and some of the other issues which we, we were talking about now 
is what is the dominant culture of everyone involved in this game, uh, and is it pro-city or not? Is there a belief in this? And I think some of the work we've done in the Munichs of this world, in the souls of this world, Turin and Barcelona, you, you, you can see it. There's a belief in the city. You just walk the streets and there's a belief in the city. The fact that the, the Steve Jobs, the entrepreneur, so to speak, uh, in the case of, of uh, let's say, the, 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 the Turin example, Munich would be equally uh, clear. Had, there's no doubt that they should go out to Swindon, right, to the equivalent. But that, that, that's where it was. Also because the individual, the family lifestyle, the, the children walk to school, uh, that everyone sort of lived in relatively high density, close to each other in the mix of uh, uses and culture, is very, very significant part of, I think, um, in a way, what, what you're raising. And one could posit, perhaps, uh, I was lucky enough to be brought up in Rome, so I, I, you know, I have a DNA of urbanism right in me, you know, I just can't avoid it. But perhaps one might posit that some of the problems here uh, in, in British cities, English cities, um, is that there isn't that profound belief. And then when, uh, when there's a moment of wobbling, you go the other way. And I was, with, with, with others, a member of the Urban Task Force, uh, which was now 14 years ago, I think, uh, began to say, no, we have to rebalance that shift and came out with a number of policies, which more or less, you could say, have worked, more, more or less have done some good things, but that was really going against the grain of all the civil servants in Whitehall, not to mention sort of further downstream, and the de housing developers. You know, we said, no, give me a piece of greenfield land, I can build you something cheap that the market wants. True. And sort of, in other words, I wouldn't just say it's a problem of policy, it's a problem um, of culture. This leads me, in a way, to the, an allied point, which partly cuts across to this, is the notion of, of, of density. And, and critical mass. I think that um, you can't make cities work unless you have enough people there. I mean, it, it doesn't mean too many people. And I, I was, um, in fact, with the mayor of Turin, Camperino, when the mayor of Detroit, uh, whose name I've forgotten, what's it? Dave Bing. Yeah. Um, this, this towering, giant ex-basketball champion was, was just amazed by this sister city which had gone through uh, a similar situation. He was coming to see her. And he, he just kept on saying to the mayor of Turin, he said, you got all these people on the streets. Where are they going? You know, so, and, what? and he said, they haven't left. You know, they, they, they haven't abandoned. Uh, and that, that for him was sort of a significant. Now, I'm, this is abstract on purpose because I don't think it's just policy. It's also literally a question of how you approach the city, how you invest in the city. And I would say that London then, London and not other cities perhaps, in the last 15 years has done admirable things. If you just think of the reinforcement of the Green Belt and what that does to jobs, the, the, the policy of um, allowing more housing of higher density and offices and jobs next to transport, the Olympic legacy uh, and, and the Olympics itself as an excuse to do what? To rebalance London, not to spend two weeks doing things, right? So what happens to that are all connected, I think, and therefore I feel relatively positive of what can be done. But of course there, there was um, a legal system, a completely new legal system, 
which happened to have Livingston, and interesting, I think Boris Johnson more or less has mm -hmm. supported most of those uh, trends uh, to put some of these things in place. So I would connect the physicality, I do all the time, yeah. uh, the, the, uh, to the culture of just people psyching to the politics. You can't do one without the other. Great. I mean, unfortunately, we're, we're pretty much out of time, so I'm sure there's, there's plenty more questions. But I think just to, to finish off very briefly, um, I mean, we've talked about a lot of the issues that really do affect cities. I mean, you've highlighted some of the, some of the key lessons. For a city in crisis, for a city that, that's just emerging from this uh, recession, if they're in the West, um, if they're a city facing major challenges around um, some of the slums that you talked about. I mean, is there, is there just one thing you'd say, right, if you're going to do anything when you're thinking about your economy, you need to do this. This is the thing that we've learned. You must at least start from this point. Is there one thing that you could point to um, that would be common, whether that's focusing on the economic assets, whether that's leadership? Is there one thing you could pull out? Ricky. Bruce. Bruce. <laughs> well, Rahm Emanuel, who's going to be the mayor of Chicago, said that a crisis is a terrible thing to waste. So, um, uh, and then they went ahead and passed health care. So I, I, I would say that the, the, the first thing sounds almost like, you know, pedestrian, frankly, although pedestrians are good, um, uh, is to know yourself. You know, wall yourself off from all these idea viruses which one year is biotech and the next year is the creative class and the next year is some, is some other. Just wall yourself off from it. Just basically understand who you were because who you were to some extent dictates who you are and who you're going to be. And then, and then build on that. Build on that strength. But do it not by looking within. Do it by looking at without. The future is the global economy. And for American metros, it's to be globally fluent building off their special base. Great. Thank you, Bruce. I, I think I, I, I would add to that, that by, by looking outside and beyond the boundaries, you don't belittle and believe that you're not belittling or weakening the identity of the city, I think, is important. In terms of the one act, uh, I'd I nearly go back to land use planning, not allow any form of out-of-town development whatsoever. As a starting point, just start with that because then a lot of other things will happen. The minute there are green shoots, they're going to happen in the middle where you can move, where you can get access, where people who are, can get educated, where children can go to school and live, etc., etc. So I think actually I, I would stress the, the, the land use planning side yeah. as central to the debate about uh, economic sustainability in any city. And that applies to Lagos as much as it does to uh, Birmingham. Great. I mean, it was, it was an evil question, so I appreciate you both sure. taking such a good step. But I, mean, I think it's, it's been a, a really fantastically interesting session with really good insights into what's happening to cities, what some of the challenges are, what some of the opportunities. So I'd just like to thank you all for attending and ask you to uh, thank the speakers in the usual way, please.